Many of the people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 were people who felt that they had been cheated by previous Republican nominees. That Dwight Eisenhower, for instance, would talk about the evils of big government and big spending and Social Security, but did nothing about it to the point that Barry Goldwater called the Eisenhower presidency a dime store New Deal. Richard Nixon campaigned in 1968 as a conservative among Republicans, but a lot of the things that Nixon did, especially in that first term, on the environment and civil rights, other things, a lot of them look to conservative Republicans awfully like Democratic dogma. Even Ronald Reagan, who campaigned in 1980, as he had done for years by saying government is too big and costs too much, ran up the biggest deficits in the history of the United States. So there was this rising anger that continued to rise during later decades. And here you have Donald Trump saying the reason why everyone is suffering so much is that previous Republican nominees like Ronald Reagan or George H.W. Bush, they did not really mean what they said. The conditions that led to our current crisis of fact can't be traced to a single incident, person, or presidency. The age of disillusion, as Sean Wilentz called it in an earlier episode, has deep roots in American history. And this is the story of some of those roots. The sense of disappointment, even betrayal, some conservatives have felt at the hands of Republican presidents who haven't governed the way the right thought they should. This great nation of ours is a caring, loving land. Its people have a zest for life and laughter. Franklin Roosevelt shared those qualities. The Nixon of the 50s was a mix of outsider against the establishment and at the same time a member of the establishment. If you were a Republican nominee, you have basically had a choice between openly courting anti-civil rights segregationists or doing it in a far more subtle way and talking about things that were more political philosophy, like states' rights. There's an appeal to the passions of displacement, the emotion of losing a way of life as the country is trying desperately to imagine itself anew in the midst of these convulsions. And so we find Governor Roosevelt already sensing the elation of coming triumph as he feels the pulse of the people entering Springfield, Illinois. The city was thronged. On Sunday, September 3, 1936, tens of thousands of people lined the streets of Des Moines, Iowa. They were there to catch a glimpse of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, who arrived by train at the Rock Island Station at noon. Troops from the 14th Cavalry stood at attention as uniformed buglers greeted the commander-in-chief. FDR emerged from his private carriage, Pioneer, balanced on the arm of his youngest son, John Roosevelt. Smiling broadly to a cheering crowd, the president was transferred to an open car where he took a seat next to the governor of Iowa and the mayor of Des Moines. Their destination? A meeting of Midwestern and Plains governors at the state capitol to discuss drought relief a summit that included Roosevelt's opponent in the coming presidential election, Alf Landon of Kansas. The presence of the two major party candidates in Des Moines, which was already unusually full because of the late summer Iowa State Fair, created an electric atmosphere. 
The Washington Post reported that 10,000 jammed city to cheer nominees. Police sirens blared as the president's motorcade slowly and circuitously inched its way through the city's business district. As the president rode along, he waved his Panama hat to acknowledge the spectators, some of whom were standing six deep. Ticker tape came down in bursts, and the crowds were in what the New York Times called a holiday spirit. It was a classic and common scene from the annals of the Roosevelt presidency, a reign in which the aristocratic FDR nevertheless managed to create an intimate bond with great swaths of the people. So much so that when he died in April 1945, ordinary Americans would tell journalists, I never met him, but I feel as if I lost my best friend. Such was Roosevelt's magnetism and power, a magnetism and a power on vivid display on that September Sunday in Des Moines, roughly four years into the Great Depression. Nearly half a century later, at least one admirer could recall FDR's parade from the station to the Capitol in great detail. A young sportscaster at Des Moines' WHO radio station had been visibly thrilled as he hurried to the window of his offices on Walnut Street to take in the motorcade. Franklin Roosevelt was the first president I ever saw. I remember the moment vividly. It was in 1936, a campaign parade in Des Moines, Iowa. Ronald Reagan told a gathering of Roosevelt family and New Dealers at a 1982 centennial celebration of the 32nd president's birth. What a wave of affection and pride swept through that crowd as he passed by in an open car. A familiar smile on his lips, jaunty and confident. Drawing from us reservoirs of confidence and enthusiasm some of us had forgotten we had during those hard years. Maybe that was FDR's greatest gift to us. He really did convince us that the only thing we had to fear was fear itself. Speaking in the East Room, Reagan, now the 40th president, paid tribute to the Democrat for whom he had voted four times in 1932, 1936, 1940, and 1944. Reagan said, FDR was denounced by some as a traitor to his class. But people who said that missed the whole point of what he believed in and what this country's all about. There's only one class, and that's we the people. The sight of Roosevelt in Des Moines, Reagan recalled, was when he had first felt the awe and majesty of this office. And for my part, a young sportscaster who first felt the awe and majesty of this office when that familiar caped figure drove down the avenue in Des Moines, Iowa in 1936. A figure who proved to us all that happy days could and would come again. The kind words were more than a little surprising to some in the audience, not a few of whom had been skeptical of their host as they sat down to their first course of lobster bisque. A former New Dealer himself, a self-described hemophiliac liberal from mid-century, Reagan had grown more conservative in the 1950s and early 60s, changing his party registration from Democrat to Republican 20 years before, in the spring of 1962. Since then, Reagan had been seen in many quarters, as he put it during the 1980 campaign, as a combination of the Mad Bomber and Ebenezer Scrooge, 
a right-wing avenging angel bent on dismantling Roosevelt's legacy. At his inauguration in January 1981, amid high inflation and interest rates, Reagan had denounced the growth of the federal establishment, growth that had begun under FDR, and said, In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Yet there was no such talk in the East Room. Reagan was subtler at the Roosevelt luncheon, suggesting, eloquently but obliquely, that the task of the 1980s was to bring public and private into a more even balance, not to veer wildly rightward. Reagan said, This great nation of ours is a caring, loving land. Its people have a zest for life and laughter. And Franklin Roosevelt shared those qualities. But we're also a practical people with an inborn sense of proportion. We sense when things have gone too far, when the time has come to make fundamental changes. Franklin Roosevelt was that kind of a person, too. It was a deft maneuver. Reagan was enlisting Roosevelt in the cause of a new presidency in a new era. Every generation of Americans has faced problems, and every generation has overcome them. Like Franklin Roosevelt, we know that for free men, hope will always be a stronger force than fear. That we only fail when we allow ourselves to be boxed in by the limitations and errors of the past. The president then offered a toast. To happy days, now, again, and always. To happy days. From 1933 to 2017, Americans inhabited a political universe largely defined by FDR and by Reagan. Yet that has changed. In the age of Trump and its, God willing, aftermath, many see Reagan, who rhetorically privileged the private over the public sector, as a root cause of the anti-government, anti-institutional worldview now prevalent on the American right. To my mind, however, the truth is more complicated. This is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm not here to lionize Ronald Reagan, but I am here to offer some thoughts that see him not as a forerunner of Trumpism, but as a foil and as an inadvertent source of reactive energy for the flight from the world of fact into the world of right-wing, anti-democratic fantasy. The case against Reagan's familiar. He spoke in favor of states' rights in 1980 in Neshoba County, Mississippi, where civil rights workers had been murdered. His economic policies had the effect of widening the wealth gap. He did not recognize the severity of the HIV-AIDS epidemic. And in the Iran-Contra affair, he presided over the sale of arms to Iran and the diversion of the proceeds to fund the Nicaraguan Contras in defiance of a congressional ban. For conservatives, however, the Gipper's sins came not when he ruled from the right, but when he failed to deliver actual conservative reform. 
Reagan sought the presidency promising a repeal of the Great Society, not the New Deal. He cut marginal tax rates in 1981 and then raised taxes four times in the next seven years. Federal spending rose on his watch. The reality did not match the rhetoric, or at least the popular rhetoric. His vice president, George H.W. Bush, used to marvel to me in interviews long after the two had left office about how Reagan reversed himself, and yet the GOP base never seemed to hold him accountable for it. That accountability, as it turned out, would be a slow burn, and of a piece with conservative reaction to another conservative hero who ran and spoke one way while governing in another, Richard Milhouse Nixon. The Nixon of the 50s was a mix of outsider, populist, if you will, strong anti-communist, appealing to outsiders against the establishment, and at the same time, a member of the establishment. This is the journalist, author, and historian, Evan Thomas. It's a little confusing because he gets to Washington, and he is an outsider, but he wants to be an insider although he's resentful of Harvard and the New York Times and the liberals, he also wants to be accepted by them. Nixon runs on populism. He runs against the left. He runs against the establishment. He runs against Harvard. But when he gets to Washington, he appoints a lot of Harvard guys to be in his cabinet. His national security advisor was a Harvard professor. His secretary of defense went to Harvard. And he's already got a foot in the establishment, and he goes a little bit further because that was sort of the hiring pool in 1968. If you wanted to have good government people, it was Harvard or it was the East Coast establishment, people approved of by the New York Times. So even though Nixon is denouncing the establishment and the liberal establishment, he's hiring from it. It can be difficult now to see Nixon whole. Watergate and the president's resignation loom so large that the popular conversation rarely stops to consider Nixon's policies. He ran in 1968 on a platform of law and order, narrowly winning the presidency in a chaotic year against Hubert Humphrey and the segregationist George Wallace of Alabama, who carried five states and 13.5% of the popular vote. Nixon was determined to deploy what became known as the Southern Strategy, a determined effort to attract long-loyal white Democrats to the Republican ranks. Talk of small government, of states' rights, and the demonization of Washington itself tapped into white racial anxieties. You look at what Richard Nixon said to the Republican convention after he was nominated, we have to have law and order with justice. This is Michael Beschloss, a historian and the author of nine books on the American presidency. And people would say, you're saying law and order, that means, you know, repression against black people. We'd said, no, 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 I was saying with justice. But before saying that, Nixon had made a deal with Strom Thurmond, this is almost biblical, who was the Dixiecrat segregationist candidate of 1948, who, as you know, got a number of southern states when he ran. Thurmond basically gave Nixon his blessing, and the tacit exchange was, Nixon would not do something on civil rights that would be too objectionable to Thurman. In this, Nixon was reacting to a reality that had come into being during his first bid for the presidency in 1960. In that year, John Kennedy had placed a call of sympathy to a pregnant Coretta Scott King after her husband, Dr. Martin Luther King, 
had been arrested and jailed in Georgia. King's father, Daddy King, then switched his endorsement from Nixon to Kennedy. Then, after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which Kennedy had proposed, Lyndon Johnson had signed, and Barry Goldwater had opposed, there was a tectonic shift in voting. From 1964 to 2020, an average of about 90% of black voters supported Democrats for president. Lyndon Johnson was being understated when he reportedly said that Democrats may have lost the South for a generation. You think about President Johnson's declaration that we've lost the South for a generation. And what happened as a result, the political realignment that follows from that? This is the historian, author, and professor of African-American studies at Princeton University, Eddie Gloud. And then the ways in which a political calculus is recalculated in order to address that realignment. And here I'm thinking about Richard Nixon's Southern strategy, the ways in which one appeals to white resentment and, and white fear and white grievance, the way in which one plays the cultural wars, right? And that is the sense in which there's an appeal to the passions of displacement, the emotion of losing a way of life as the country is trying desperately to imagine itself anew in the midst of these convulsions. And so I think at the heart of it, if you have a political orientation aimed at principally appealing to the passions, resentments, and of course, this is not new. I mean, Machiavelli talked about this stuff, right? Hobbes talked about this stuff. But here we see as a part of the shift, once those Southern Democrats, those Dixiecrats make their way into the Republican Party, once there's this strategy afoot that the way in which we can maintain our hold on power is by appealing to those resentments, those hatreds, well, reason is battered and bruised as the ground for democratic deliberation, it seems to me. Before 1964, the Republican Party was the more liberal party, and more progressive party on race by far. When Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, he was opposed by Barry Goldwater, who said that he had a constitutional objection to the Civil Rights Act, which was a polite way of allowing a lot of people to say, we object to this act that says that if you're in a restaurant, you have to serve anyone black or white or anything else, and the same thing with a hotel. And it's not because we're racists, it's because we have principled constitutional objections. But if you were a Republican nominee, you have basically had a choice between openly courting anti-civil rights segregationists or doing it in a far more subtle way and talking about things that were more political philosophy, like states' rights or you know, constitutional problems with voting rights bills. But the point is that if you were a Republican trying to get votes, there are very few Republican nominees after 1960 who did not try to do that in some way by relating to the fear in the souls of white Americans, some of whom did not have souls, about black people getting their rights. Once in office in 1969, Nixon in fact governed less from the right than from 
the center-left. He proposed a liberal health care insurance plan. He was intrigued by a guaranteed family income. He created the Environmental Protection Agency. He appointed Supreme Court justices who, in 1973, were key votes and even the author of the Roe v. Wade decision. And he went to China, bringing that communist nation into the international fold while he pursued detente with the Soviet Union. Nixon's style of governance, one largely emulated by his successor, Gerald Ford, fueled Reagan's rise on the right. The irony, of course, is that once candidate Reagan became President Reagan, he too governed as more of a centrist than his most fervent supporters wished or his most fervent foes liked to admit. Now, to argue that Ronald Reagan lived in a world of fact, as opposed to the Trumpian universe of fantasy, can seem a tough case to make. The greatest hits are numerous and undeniable. Confusing nitrous oxide and nitrogen dioxide, Reagan once said that trees caused more pollution than vehicles. He once claimed to have been present at the liberation of Nazi concentration camps, when in fact he had just seen film footage of the carnage. His imaginative life in Hollywood bled over into his sense of reality, and he saw the world as he wished to see it, not necessarily as it was. As Lou Cannon, the longtime Washington Post reporter and authoritative Reagan chronicler once wrote, long before he became president, Reagan was notorious for gaffes and oddball statistics. The most outlandish of these tended to be flights of fancy that were loosely based on stories or statistics that he had taken from human events, Reader's Digest, or the local newspaper, and lodged in his mental card file. He had a powerful but indiscriminate memory that rarely distinguished between the actual and the apocryphal. William F. Buckley Jr. once told Cannon, People say he is a simpleton, which isn't quite right. And when they realize he isn't, they're apt to go to the other end of the spectrum and compare him to Socrates, which doesn't work either. All true, all inarguable, all stipulated. But here's the thing. Ronald Reagan actually governed in style and in substance in a way that would be totally recognizable to Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, and Jimmy Carter. He was not an authoritarian. He did not challenge self-evident election results. He believed in immigration and in free trade. He appointed Antonin Scalia to the Supreme Court, as well as Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy. And in Reagan's post-presidency, he endorsed the passage of the anti-gun Brady Bill, named for the press secretary who had fallen at his side in the 1981 assassination attempt. I want to tell all of you here today something that I'm not sure you know. You do know that I'm a member of the NRA, and my position on the right to bear arms is well known. But I want you to know something else, and I'm going to say it in clear, unmistakable language. I support the Brady Bill, and I urge the Congress to enact it without future. The storming of the Capitol on January 6, 2021, was not a sequential event in the Reagan Revolution, which was not as much of a revolution 
as people tend to think. The subtle disenchantment with the reality, as opposed to the rhetoric of Reaganism, grew exponentially when Reagan's vice president won the 1988 election. George Herbert Walker Bush knew the right had long been skeptical of him, and he threw his formidable personal political energy into charming the conservative Republican base. In 1989, when Dick Cheney became Secretary of Defense, Congressman Newt Gingrich of Georgia won an internal leadership election to replace Cheney as the GOP whip. Over beers in the White House with Gingrich and Vin Weber, the Minnesota congressman who'd managed Gingrich's House campaign, the president seemed not to be saying what was on his mind. Weber decided to cut to the chase. Mr. President, he said, you've been very nice to us. Tell us what your biggest fear is about us. Bush replied, well, I'm worried that sometimes your idealism will get in the way of what I think is sound governance. In that single sentence, President Bush had encapsulated a great truth. Gingrich and his team believed so deeply in adherence to conservative orthodoxy in the search for power that compromise, and Bush saw compromise as essential to what he'd called sound governance, was out of the question. So I made a mistake, and I, uh, you know, the difference I think is that I knew at the time I was gonna take a lot of political flack. I knew we'd have somebody out there yelling, read my lips, and I did it because I thought it was right, and I made a mistake. That's quite different than taking a position where you know it's best for you. That wasn't best for me, and I knew it in the very beginning. I thought it would be better for the country than it was. The 41st president was never fully at home with the increasingly conservative base of his own party. Yet, as a Senate candidate in Texas in 1964, he had opposed the Civil Rights Act. As a presidential candidate in 1988, his campaign benefited from racist imagery in an independent expenditure group ads targeting a convicted criminal who had raped and killed on a furlough from a Massachusetts prison under his opponent, Michael Dukakis. And when Bush pledged no new taxes in 1988, he didn't really mean it. He saw campaigns as fields for what he called, in a phrase from Mao, the empty cannons of rhetoric. And so when he did raise taxes in 1990, Bush was surprised at the ferocity of the reaction from the Gingrich-led Republicans in the House and in the emerging world of right-wing talk radio. The end of the fairness doctrine in the Reagan administration had given figures such as Rush Limbaugh an opening on AM radio to launch daily attacks on the Washington consensus that Bush, in his heart, embodied. Seriously, talk radio has become the conversation of American democracy and a major political force. Last year, talk radio killed the congressional pay raise. What's the next target? President Bush was seen as kind of a moderate Trojan horse by the right. And its reaction to the Bush presidency, which was also, in a way, a delayed reaction to the substance of the Reagan years, fueled the conservative journey ever farther away from a reality-based universe and deeper into its own jagged landscape of fantasy. Bush 41 had seen this up close. In 1988, in Kingsport, Tennessee, a hardcore right-winger, a supporter of the evangelical Pat Robertson, 
had refused to shake the vice president's hand. In his diary afterward, Bush reflected, this staring, glaring, ugly, there's something terrible about those who carry it to extremes. They're scary. They're there for spooky, extraordinary, right-winged reasons. They don't care about party. They don't care about anything. They're the excesses. They could be Nazis. They could be communists. They could be whatever. They will destroy this party if they're allowed to take over. There's not enough of them in my view, but this woman reminded me of my John Birch days in Houston. The lights go out and they pass out the ugly literature. Guilt by association, nastiness, ugliness, believing the conspiratorial theories. A belief that would, alas, only grow as the decades passed. Next on Fate of Fact, One Nation Under God? As conservative evangelical Christians rise in power, they see the world arrayed against them, and in reaction, they launch a crusade to make America over in their image. On the next episode of Fate of Fact. Thank you for listening to Fate of Fact, a presentation of Shining City Audio, a John Meacham and C-13 original studio, created and executive produced by me, John Meacham, and Chris Corcoran. Fate of Fact was written and narrated by me, John Meacham, directed by Lloyd Lockridge, edited, engineered, and mastered by Chris Basil. Additional production, engineering, and research support by Paige Heimson, Bill Schultz, Sean Cherry, and Ian Mott. Our theme song is Remember Me as a Time of Day by Explosions in the Sky. Artwork by Kirk Courtney. Marketing and PR support by Brian Swarth, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. 
the fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company, and why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment, and if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.